Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler, and today I have an incredibly fascinating conversation to share with you. I just had the opportunity to speak with Jeremy Wayne Tate, who is the president of CLT, which stands for Classical Learning Test. The CLT is a competitor to the SAT in the ACT, uh, which just by its nature is super interesting to me. Uh, for those of you who know my story, you know that I uh, dropped out of college, was extremely turned off by the college board and everything about the admissions process. And uh, I am super excited about what Jeremy is working on in regards to uh, this test and orienting students towards a classical education. I had a ton of fun asking Jeremy all sorts of questions that I was interested in related to his project here. I'm extremely excited about the future of the CLT and uh, I highly encourage all of you to both follow Jeremy on Twitter and listen to their podcast called the Anchored Podcast. It sounds super interesting and awesome. So please, without further delay, enjoy this conversation with Jeremy Wayne Tate. Hey, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you on the show. Hey, Patrick, thanks so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. So, Jeremy, for the audience out there who maybe is not familiar with your work just yet, would you mind telling them a little bit about yourself, where you come from, and what you're up to? Sure. Yeah. Uh, my name is Jeremy Tate. I'm podcasting today from Annapolis, Maryland. And so, if we hear the Blue Angels buzz overhead, uh, they come a couple times a year, which is always exciting. Uh, but yeah, I, I launched actually an alternative uh, to the SAT and ACT about six years ago, which may sound painfully boring, uh, but the whole subject of testing is actually really, really fascinating, and it plays a huge role, maybe the most uh, powerful role uh, in kind of dictating what happens in classrooms across the country. So uh, thrilled to be here. Happy to chat. So I, I have to ask, I mean, where was the seed for this idea? How did this originate? Was this something, was this a pent up frustration from taking the SATs a long time ago? Or is this a, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, where did you, where did this idea begin for you? Yeah. You know, I, I was really bored uh, for most of school. Uh, I was bored through middle school and most of high school. Uh, and then my senior year uh, in high school, I started on my own reading authors like C.S. Lewis, got into philosophy, got into authors uh, like Chesterton. Uh, he's played a huge uh, role in my thinking over the years. Um, and then after college, uh, I got I, I launched an SAT ACT prep company, uh, had four kiddos, and it was an easy way to, to put food on the table, uh, make some supplemental income. And as I got really, really uh, immersed into the SAT and ACT, I was really shocked with what they were actually putting on this test. Um, here, these students are spending countless hours studying, preparing, um, you know, these tests are driving what's actually happening in their English class and other classes. Uh, and the source material, the content is just painfully boring. Uh, it was meaningless. And as I started to ask people kind of in the industry, I started to get a, a sense of why um, College Board and ACT both have a sensitivity committee uh, to make sure that a student doesn't have to read anything that could possibly upset them at all. 
which seems strange because one of the marks, I believe, of an educated person is that you can entertain ideas that you might not agree with uh, without having an emotional meltdown. And so my thought was, wow, maybe there's a huge opportunity here where if you could just change uh, this one thing, uh, this one line of line of code, so to speak, that you could change really all of education with it. And so, you know, we're launching into lower grade testing as well. Uh, our our ten year goal is to be number one over both uh, the College Board and ACT. Uh, we at least double uh, in test takers every year. Young people, uh, parents are hungry for meaning and substance and tradition uh, in education. Um, mainstream K twelve education has been gutted uh, of everything uh, that used to give it meaning and purpose. Uh, if you were to ask anyone from Ben Franklin or Thomas Jefferson or Frederick Douglass or Jane Austen, Harry Beecher Stowe, you know, what is education? Uh, they would have talked about the formation uh, of the whole person, moral formation. Uh, they would have talked about philosophy, logic, rhetoric, grammar, history, geography, penmanship. All of this is gone. Um, and instead, it's not even really clear what's supposed to be happening uh, in mainstream K-12 education. Uh, so we're, we're having a lot of fun kind of playing the, the role of a disruptor uh, and trying to point people back to a richer tradition that offers some real substance. Wow. I mean, there, there is so much that I want to touch on in there. So, I mean, when it comes to, first off, I love the idea of trying to attack one piece of, you know, that one line of code that if you can change this, it could change everything. Could you tell me sort of where you see the ripple effects of, you know, this test being, you know, popularized and, you know, being more widely implemented, what kind of ripple effects you could imagine that having? Yeah, you almost cannot over-exaggerate the influence of, of College Board in American education. And College Board is not a, uh, they are a pretty radical organization. I mean, they control all the AP testing, the AP courses, the PSAT, the SAT, uh, and it shows up in a number of places. And so if you're a private school, one of the main ways you do your marketing is by the number of national merit award recipients that you have, right? That's based on PSAT scores. Um, if you're a public school, your teachers' uh, districts are, are evaluated by how they're doing in part on PSAT scores. Um, a lot of people think, oh, you know, we've had this big test optional movement, and so colleges aren't really requiring an SAT or ACT score anymore. Although that is true, the reality is also that more students are taking both the SAT and ACT than ever before, and way more students are taking the PSAT than ever before. And the reason is that College Board uh, has an army of lobbyists. Uh, I heard that they spent over $100 million in 2019 alone uh, oh. wor working to push uh, legislation through at the state level that forces kids to take their tests uh, whether they want to or not. Uh, it's, it's used now and it's sold now as kind of the main way to measure uh, academic progress over time. Um, and again, these are tests that uh, any passage, uh, anything that's connected to, to, to really rich history, certainly philosophy or religion, uh, is, is totally gutted uh, from these. That's unbelievable. I did not know that about the college board and I'm not surprised to hear it. I you know, remember when I was in high school, uh, just a little background, I'm a triplet. So I have a brother and a sister my age. That's and, okay. uh, and so, you know, everything we're doing is kind of in lockstep and they both decided to do the PSATs and I did not. And I, you know, they were bombarded following that with marketing and, uh, you know, tons of different, uh, 
really just advertisements for different colleges and educations and everything. And so I saw, you know, like, Hey, this seems less of a preparatory test for the SAT because there's a lot of disconnects from it. Uh, and more so of a, of a marketing, uh, Oh yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're very astute college board primarily the college board is primarily a data mining apparatus organization. That's how they monetize. They sell hundreds of hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue stream from selling data to colleges. College college right now, especially a four-year brick and mortar college, uh, that market is contracting and it's rapidly contracting. A lot of people think is 30, 40, 50% of these colleges could close. And I think Patrick, when we were chatting before we went live here, I think a lot of young people can relate to your story where you kind of looked at what was actually being offered and you thought, I I can do better than this. And so because there has been such a dramatic mission drift for so many of these colleges, I mean, a lot of these colleges now they're purely a la carte. You don't have to take anything you don't want to take. Even at a school like Hopkins, we think, man, Johns Hopkins, what a, what a great university. You don't have to take anything you don't want to take at Hopkins. And that's where these universities are. What they care about is they care about getting your, your dollars at the end of the day. Uh, and so students are getting a piece of paper at the end of four years uh, that doesn't really convey a whole lot of anything. Now, thankfully, there are exceptions to this. I'm a big fan of schools like Hillsdale, St. John's here in Annapolis, uh, Grove City, a lot of the, the the more conservative, smaller Catholic colleges, where what they're doing is different. What they're actually doing is they're forming people uh, in ways where the, the student actually graduates and they're more responsible and they're more like an adult uh, after four years uh, than when they entered. But the opposite is happening uh, at the majority of colleges right now. And so look, some of them ought to be closing because they're not offering anything of value to anybody. I couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, I saw that as well in the college landscape, which is, yeah, there are some schools that still take their responsibility to educate people seriously, but many of them are really just packaged getaways for, you know, 30 to $50,000 semesters where you're going to go there, you're going to live in a dorm, you're going to party for, you know, years and ultimately get out in debt and without any practical applicable skills, especially for the modern world. You know, there's many majors and educational pathways that give you zero, uh, skills that that would be applicable in in business or emerging industries yeah I, i've talked to a lot of young people I, I don't know how young you are patrick but certainly younger than i am uh but i i've talked to a number I'm 27 <laughs> 27 yeah who who again they, they looked at what's being offered and they said no thanks you know i i and you look at it to, to university of massachusetts there's uh, a number, uh, a growing number uh, of young people who have a very similar story i think and i think these colleges really have to wake up and look in the mirror and figure out why people are opting out. What, what do you, uh, where, where do you see that uh, the biggest divide being? You know, of course there's, you know, I think we're starting to see the feedback loop of, you know, people are getting out of college and they're super indebted and they're, mm. they don't have practical skills, but for you, where, where do you see, you know, why most of these colleges have started to fall apart? Yeah, I mean, how, how wild I mean, during a time when, when the university president is paid uh, more than ever before that students are graduating with sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, you know, for a degree, that's really not attractive to most employers anyway, uh, from a college that often is a liability. You know, sometimes we'll get an application here at CLT from somebody from, I won't name the college, but, but you know, one of the local colleges. And it's almost like a liability. I'm like, I know what happens there over four years. You spent the last four years partying your ass off. Why do I want to now 
you know, give you a job here. Um, so I, I don't know, but, but, but it is going to be um, massive uh, change over a very short period of time. Again, I think conservative 30% uh, of brick and mortar colleges are going to close over, you know, three, four, five year period. Uh, and I think with that, the ones that will be left, I think a lot of them are going to be some, some of the more high quality institutions. And I think a lot of them are going to go back to the bread and butter uh, of offering students uh, a rich education that's not just, uh, you know, an education and kind of the, the latest fad. Got it. Is there, could you shed some light on a, a problem that I've heard about in the university system where over the past, let's say five to 10 years, the number of administrators has gone up through the roof comparatively to the, you know, sort of students at teacher ratio. And you mentioned, you know, the extremely high salary or pay for, you know, a university president. Uh, and, you know, it's, there's sort of this disconnect between the cost of education and the value of education and yeah. you know, some of the sources and reasons for that. Yeah, there, there's two main reasons for the climbing cost of higher ed. And so one of them is, is administration. You know, they're hiring more and more uh, kind of educrats, as I call them, educational bureaucrats. Uh, and then the other is actually just infrastructure on campus. And so as the market contracts, as colleges become hyper-competitive for students, the way they compete is they create, they build new cool things on campus. So I went to Louisiana State University. They just put in a, a new lazy river because college students have such a stressful life and they need to be able to float around for a few hours, you know, while semi-intoxicated after two classes in a day, right? Um, this is where the money's going, you know. Every college has to have a 120-foot rock wall or, or whatever else. You know, this, this infrastructure, it costs a lot of money. Parents are footing the bill. Uh, and the fear is that if they don't build the newest, shiniest building, then they're going to miss out on students. And so it's kind of an arms race. It only perpetuates the problem because it just keeps driving the cost up. Wow. That's a, that's a really a fascinating insight there. Uh, so when you decide to start this uh, company with the alternative testing, what was your, do you, do you see this as an opportunity to influence the way that colleges make those kinds of financial decisions? Yeah, you know, I, I, it's probably would be, uh, no, I, I don't think we'd have any shot of maybe impacting the way colleges make financial decisions. Uh, I, I do think we can have an impact though on um, look, College Board, ACT, they're not just uh, admissions tests. They're, they're primarily what I would call enrollment engines for colleges. And so CLT, we have very close relationships uh, with schools like Grove City, uh, University of Dallas, Dallas Baptist, uh, Christendom, Hillsdale. You know, uh, we have close relationships with colleges that are offering a strong core curriculum. They're anchored in uh, tradition. Uh, they haven't had this kind of mass, massive mission drift. And so what we're trying to do is point students towards uh, this, this tinier fraction, maybe 20% or so uh, of colleges that are still doing what they set out to do maybe a hundred years ago or more. Um, and so with that, you know, a lot of the colleges that we work closely with, they're, they're having record record years in terms of, of applicants. I think parents are waking up and students are waking up and they're seeing exactly, you know, what you saw, Patrick, and they're saying, most of these colleges are not offering anything of substance. You know, where can I go to get a really serious education? Uh, and they're running up at places, uh, again, like Hillsdale and Grove City. Um, so yeah, no, I, I'm not optimistic that we would necessarily change, uh, you know, where colleges are spending their money, but I, I think we are playing a big role in, in where students uh, are applying and where they're interested in matriculating. Well, that's, that's sort of uh, what I think would be 
you know, it's, it's a ripple effect of if the students start to see the value in real education, as opposed to the 120 foot rock wall and such, you know, it's, it sort of aligns the incentives for the, for the university to perhaps start investing in education of all things. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You know, I look back at my own four years at LSU and like, whatever, I had fun. LSU football games are great. It was a good time. Um, But when I think, when did I learn the most in college? It was actually the summer I spent in Alaska living in a tent and I had nothing to entertain myself but old books. You know, I read Brothers K and Crime and Punishment for the first time, literally in a tent in Alaska, because I was just kind of bored. And I think I learned more doing that than maybe any other semester uh, at college. And uh, I think what that says is, is kind of an indictment, for, again, for the lack of uh, substance that's being offered. Yes, yeah, certainly. And, and, you know, sort of a thought comes to mind when you say that, which is, I agree with you. You know, for me, some of the the best education that I've gotten is just reading the classics by myself. Uh, and, you know, I think uh, just trying to think through where a, you know, sort of the narrative of, of universities these days, they're focusing more and more on these niche, uh, you know, new types of majors and gravitating yeah. away from those classics. And I feel like that's sort of being mixed in with this idea that, you know, in this new world that we live in, the digital age, that you need one of these more unique niche types of educations. How is it that a classical education can help with the, you know, the practical mm-hmm. skills for you know, emerging technologies and STEM education, that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, I'm so glad you say that. I mean, one of the colleges near us, St. John's College in Annapolis, it's a great books college. There are no majors. You know, they're doing a deep dive into the Western canon, into the great books, into the classics. Uh, And one of the questions that they get asked uh, as students are coming and touring uh, and they're thinking about applying, you know, the parents say, well, how is this going to actually translate into a job? You know, because we have this utilitarian mindset where the whole purpose of college is to get a job at the end of it. But in a market that is so rapidly changing where there's a good chance if you're entering freshman, uh, you know, in 2021, that maybe the jobs in 2026 or 2025, they might not even exist yet. Uh, the market is changing. But w- what are you always going to need? You're always going to need uh, thoughtful individuals. You're going to need uh, ethically grounded people. You're going to need people with a moral compass, uh, people who can can read complicated texts uh, and understand it, who can understand different perspectives, uh, a true liberal arts education. And, and what I mean by that is an education, again, that that is not being offered at most liberal arts colleges, uh, but a, a traditional liberal arts education, uh, an education designed to set a person free. These people are going to be highly, highly employable because uh, what the, the kind of formation that they're getting is really transferable uh, to any kind of a job. That's, that's unbelievable. And I, I couldn't agree more. You know, if, when I, when I personally look at hiring people, it, it is not so much about like, what was their, what was their major, what's their credential on paper, but more so like, how do they think, how do they operate? And, you know, what ultimately will, you know, how teachable are they? And, you know, when mm-hmm. someone comes, you know, if I'm comparing two applications, if one person has, you know, they can sort of demonstrate their thoughtfulness uh, compared to just leverage their, you know, their diploma in some random major, uh, you know, I can tell you that I would definitely uh, lean towards the, the side of the person with, you know, the, the track record of thinking correctly or thinking, uh, let's say, better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's been one of the secrets to, to CLT success story as well as, you know, we, 
we launched going up against these two giants as kind of, you know, David versus Goliath and Goliath, uh, you know, this, this crappy startup Julie. starting up against the SAT and ACT. And we did so with a bunch of liberal arts majors. I mean, we were employing people from St. John's College in Annapolis, Thomas Aquinas College, Hillsdale, uh, and especially in a startup where the conversation is like, you know, hey, Jeremy, how do we do this? Or what's our policy here? And in the early days, you know, my response was, well, we don't have a policy there. Why don't you make one? You know, or let's figure out the best way to do that. Uh, especially in a startup, and there are so many startups right now as the market is rapidly changing, uh, that students with this kind of education uh, are really the best uh, thing an employer could hope for. Absolutely. And what, Jeremy, what gave you the courage to start this endeavor? Because I think for so many people, like when you look at the education space, it is very wrought, very, you know, there's, uh, it, it it's seemingly impossible to penetrate. Yeah. So, so what gave you sort of the, the courage to dive in and, and decide that this was something that not only that you wanted to spend, you know, a ton of time on ton of energy, uh, but also, you know, to go up against those Goliaths. Yeah. I, Patrick, I love that you call it courage. I think I would probably call it stupidity or just being, naive. you know, it seemed to me when I launched it, like, how hard could this be? You just change this one thing and you can change everything else with it. It's just, one thing to change, you know, it's just the test. And uh, it turns out that it's really hard. And so I think if I would have had, and look, the idea itself is not, is not that unique. We've talked to a number of people over the years who went pretty far and even meeting with investors and exploring something almost exactly like the CLT idea. A lot of people in the education space, they understand that, look, at the end of the day, and this is a really kind of crass way to put it, whoever owns uh, assessment basically owns education. And so the idea to start an alternative is not really new. I think, one, we, we just didn't know how hard it would be. And we wouldn't have started it if we would have known how hard it would be. But, you know, you get up every day, you do the next thing to move this thing forward. And now we're five and a half years into it. You know, we're closing in over the years on 100,000 test takers. Every year, we're almost doubling the number of students we work with. Um, and uh, it seems like we're, we're at a point now where we feel pretty good that this thing is, is here to stay and that the future uh, of CLT is going to be going to be bright. But uh, no, I, I, I'm flattered that you would view it as courage because we, we don't always view it that way. So thank you. Uh, I completely understand that. I mean, uh, you know, I think every business sort of starts with starts with some sort of uh, some ambition and some uh, some verve, some energy, and you know, a few years in, yeah, you're gonna look back and say, if only I knew how hard that would be, I probably wouldn't have done yeah. it. But or I'm I'm glad that you did because it's such a, you know, I'm I'm so happy to hear that you have hundreds of thousands of test takers every year and growing. You said that there's that number is nearly doubling year over year. Yeah. That's phenomenal. What what is the what is the outreach? What is the you know, how do you uh, create the competition uh, in the student's mind or create the opportunity for them to, you know, sort of like how, how do you uh, expand the market? Yeah, you know, I, I think what we're doing is inherently pretty shocking to a lot of people. We're in the education arena. Uh, it's all about novelty. It's like the newest, what's the newest idea? Um, you know, what's never been tried before. And here CLT comes along and we're saying, you know, what we ought to be doing is looking back and seeing what did previous generations do? You know, you look at America's founding generation, like whatever, okay, fine. They're, all, they're a bunch of dead white males, all right? But these are, are students of history and political science, almost unparalleled uh, in human history before. They came up with a system of government 
that anticipated kind of everything that could possibly go wrong. You know, uh, the U.S. Constitution is a work of really of staggering genius, and it was because they were deeply rooted uh, in this classical tradition. Um, and so I, I think, you know, part of the marketing of CLT is sort of, you know, has uh, been kind of perpetuating this, that there's a bit of a shock value that we're not trying to create something new, but we're fundamentally saying, look, every generation before us, for the most part, thought education was fundamentally uh, about the uh, cultivation of virtue, about moral formation, um, about the, the transmission of knowledge and culture. And uh, again, that came to a grinding halt, especially uh, in the past 20, 30 years. Um, so yeah, we've, we, we are viewed as weird uh, in, uh, from the educational establishment in a lot of ways. You know, they're not comfortable with us coming in and questioning what they're doing uh, and kind of the bias that has just become the norm. I mean, it is, I, I was tweeting just today, you know, Harvard University and Harvard's actually been really fair to CLT and I, I do need to say that, but you know, they are uh, on the front page of their website talking about the diverse learning perspectives, you know, that enrich uh, the Harvard community. But the Harvard students did their own research and they determined that 1% uh, of Harvard faculty identify as conservative. Now, whether or not somebody is conservative or not is kind of besides the point. The point is that it's not really a diverse community when 99% of people uh, are on kind of one side of the political spectrum uh, and thoughts can't be challenged. You know, I'm, I would identify as, as, especially an educational conservative, but I would never want to send my kids to a college that was 99% conservative faculty. And that's all across higher ed that you kind of have this group think uh, and a bias uh, that makes it very hard for people with, with more traditional perspectives uh, to have a, a platform. So, um, you know, with that, I think uh, a lot of the, a lot of what we're doing in terms of, and look, even though we're a fraction of the size of college border ACT, I mean, they test millions of students a year. We do have, even in terms of raw numbers, a, a much larger base that's really passionate about what we're doing. Uh, and they understand the, the potential of CLT to potentially really change mainstream education. Uh, I'm shocked to hear, shocked in a way and not shocked to hear that, you know, 99% of, uh, of professors are identifying as, let's say, not conservative. And, you know, that, that's another piece of sort of the academic puzzle to me that seems, you know, almost impossible to penetrate, which is just get, getting a diversity of ideas in there where, you know, diversity is really turned into like a racial ethnic sort of thing. And, and you'd yeah. think in an educational space that it would be about the free flow of ideas, which, you know, from variety of events and, and, uh, say occurrences in universities over the past few years that, you know, there's speakers that get canceled by sort of the cancel culture on campus, uh, not able to talk, not able to share ideas. And that seems yeah. like very, uh, flies in the face of the enlightenment values that our founding fathers had, right? Oh yeah, and I remember sitting in college and learning about, and, and like I, I am a Catholic, but I remember hearing about, uh, you know, the way the Catholic church would, would limit books and ban books and, you know, thought police or whatever, you know, in the, in the middle ages. And as you have the beginning of the university system with, with Oxford and Cambridge and the University of Paris and others. Uh, but what's happening right now, I think is actually this kind of, whatever you want to call it, maybe this, this new secular orthodoxy uh, that wants to, to censor free speech, that wants to censor, you know, what can be read. Um, I, I think it's every bit, if not more uh, stringent and alarming. I mean, the university is intended to be an, a, a center for an open exchange of ideas. Like that's, that's the whole point. Uh, and I, I really am confident, Patrick, that I think parents are waking up to the reality that 
not many universities are actually doing that anymore. Um, and that if you're going to send your kids to a place, they are going to be taught a, a certain perspective as the perspective uh, that you need to embrace. It's interesting how this goes uh, both in both directions, both towards the college education, but you know, what is that preparatory work in K through 12 uh, that's, you know, preparing you for life and preparing you for college and sort of how this test can sort of be the hinge to both of those uh, and align the learning. So what have you, have you seen any or, or witnessed any impact of this test on sort of that earlier education period, either in centralized public schools, private schools, or homeschooling? Yeah, that's great. You know, so so the overwhelming majority, 85% or so of CLT test takers are coming from either the homeschool arena, Catholic schools, classical schools, private Christian schools. Uh, they often use CLT not so much even as a college admissions test, but as an internal metric uh, to track academic progress over time. And so uh, for a classical school that is interested in knowing what, how do your kids actually do reading great works of philosophy, uh, classical literature, uh, how do they do reading, um, you know, enlightenment uh, science passages? Uh, the CLT can give them insight into where their students are at in a way that the SAT and ACT certainly uh, cannot. And so I think that's one of the reasons uh, we've had the kind of growth we have had over the years is because uh, schools are using it uh, in that capacity as an internal metric for tracking uh, academic growth. And then we're also launching uh, a lower, lower grade assessments uh, in the next year. So that'll be grades uh, three, through eight as well, uh, which is a lot of fun. You know, I'm, I'm a dad of young kids. I got five kiddos, number six is on the way. Wow, congratulations. Um, I just, no, thanks so much. Yeah, and I just discovered this tradition myself, you know, six or seven years ago, really when I was in seminary. And I, I first got a sense of how how different what we're doing in mainstream K-12 in 2020 uh, is from like everything most generations did in terms of education. And so I started reading to my own kiddos, you know, Grimm's fairy tales and uh, Aesop's fables. Um, and it's amazing. I mean, young kids in some ways are like the most honest uh, literary critics imaginable because they just identify what's good. And like, as soon as I started reading Grimm's fairy tales to them, they didn't, they didn't want, you know, diary of a wimpy kid anymore. They didn't want the new stuff. Uh, they wanted the good stuff and the good stuff was the old stuff. Uh, so it, it's really fun that we can kind of affirm what some of these, these uh, new classical schools are the schools that are re-embracing on the, in the Catholic arena. You have a lot of schools re-embracing uh, tradition uh, that they've kind of gone away from. Uh, and that, that's a lot of fun to be a part of for sure. It's, I mean, I'm so happy to hear about the success so far, especially in these, you know, uh, in the realms that we've talked about, is there a strategy or anything that you guys are working on at CLT for, uh, you know, deeper, impact on public school and some of the larger universities? Yeah, you know, we'll see. It's funny. I, I uh, remember a couple of years ago presenting the CLT to a public university and the, the VP of enrollment said, you know, we, we can't use an admissions test that has authors like John Paul the Great and C.S. Lewis on it. And uh, I thought, man, you know what? Th these are two of the greatest minds uh, from the entire 20th century. Um, why, why can't we use them, right? Is, is it just, and then from his perspective, it was okay to just be that biased, I guess because these people also happen to love Jesus, that they were just gonna be excluded from having a seat at the table. So we're not gonna change what we're doing. We're not gonna change our author bank. We're gonna keep putting students in front of um, thinkers, many of whom happen to be religious. Um, and a lot of the mainstream public universities just aren't comfortable with that. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think that they're gonna, 
you know, see more and more that we have got uh, the ear uh, of students and parents. And, uh, you know, in some ways, I think even CLT friendliness or adoption uh, more and more uh, is being viewed by parents as, um, is this a college that is open to, friendly to, uh, you know, the Western intellectual tradition? Um, you know, if a, if a school accepts a CLT as an admissions test, it means, it at least means that they think this tradition is okay. You know, uh, yes. the tradition that ironically gave birth to the university itself, uh, the tradition that is now under attack, uh, mainstream higher ed right now. Um, so, yeah, I think it'll it'll take some time, but the more and more students and parents uh, that have embraced CLT is kind of their uh, assessment. Um, I think it's in, in some ways kind of forcing the hand of colleges and universities to pay attention. I would love to see any sort of data about students that embrace CLT, go through go through university, and you know how their results are on the other side. Uh, do you, have you accumulated any of those metrics? Has it been long enough to be able to get any of that stuff? It, it would be pretty fresh. Our our first cohort of students, and it wasn't many, uh, was the spring of 2016. Those were those were the seniors that tested with us for the very first CLT. Uh, but I think over time, you know, we're going to get that. And also, you know, from a data perspective, CLT is hoping to become uh, an entity that can prove uh, the fruitfulness of this kind of education. And one thing we haven't talked about yet is uh, just what's happening with the, with the really uh, mushrooming homeschool movement. Uh, you know, yes. thanks to COVID, uh, it's going to double, uh, if not more, uh, just over a period uh, of about two years. Uh, I think COVID was a wake up for a lot of parents of uh, here's what my students are actually doing every day. Here's what they're actually learning. They're seeing the gap, the contrast from what they learned in school. And they're wanting something that's better for their students. And then you actually get into homeschooling. And you're like, wow, uh, you know, we, we can do more in maybe five hours or six hours than my kid being gone for eight or nine hours from the house. Uh, amazing. And I have been amazed. I got to tell you just on a very personal level. Sure. Um, meeting these students over the past six or seven years, you meet students coming from some of these classical schools, from some of these homeschools, and they're different. And I, I don't want to bash public school students in saying that, but these students, they're fundamentally different uh, in the way they've been formed by their education. Um, and uh, it's really, really impressive. Can you dispel any of the common myths about homeschool? Because, uh, you know, I, I see a lot of what you talk about on Twitter. Uh, you know, you post a lot of great content there, uh, you know, sort of related to this, but I'm, you know, there's, there's a lot of sort of, I'd say preconceived notions. I mean, I'm, I'm a public school person myself. I went through public school the whole way through. And what I would always hear about private school kids is that, you know, that they're, or homeschooled kids is that they are, you know, they're not socialized properly or, you know, it, it sounds more of like a shortcut to get out of an education. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, you know, after every test we have, I, I've kind of gotten out of this habit in the past year or so, but but historically at CLT, after every test, I always call the top two or three highest score recipients and just say, hey, congratulations, you know, out of X thousand number of students, uh, you score the highest in the nation on the CLT. Now, 40% about, on average, uh, of our test takers are homeschool students. Uh, but at least 80% of the time when I make those phone calls to the top, you know, top or the top two or three high school recipients, they're homeschool students. Um, so these students um, have the freedom to really go deep in the things that they're naturally interested in. Uh, homeschool students, especially on the verbal side, they tend to read uh, a ton of books. Um, I think that there was probably one time when like, yeah, we all have this view of the homeschool family is like they're all wearing denim and they're just weird, you know, and they live in this strange house with the chickens or whatever else. Like, 
it's not the reality anymore. I think homeschooling is more and more becoming, you know, mainstream. We've got five kids. Two of them go to private Catholic schools. Uh, the two boys uh, are homeschooled. And uh, it's been it's been really fun meeting other families that are now considering homeschooling as an option, whereas, you know, maybe 20 years ago, it would have been just too fringe to even consider. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's remarkable to see the change of, you know, I'm sort of happy for, you know, that that explosive growth over the past year, giving parents the ability to see sort of what their kids are learning over a Zoom call and wondering, you know, what's how effective is this really? Uh, and, you know, could I take the responsibility of this, you know, off of, you know, take the responsibility of my child's education and do it in a more effective and, mm. uh, and better way. It's pretty exciting to see. Tell me, Jeremy, what, uh, what do you see as the criteria for the testing in CLT? Like, how do you determine what is going to make it on the test and, Yep. You know, because I, I think that's to me is always very interesting is like who's designing the test. Right. And what that's do they what do they factor as the values that this test should get? out? Yeah. Of? Yeah. So we, we have got uh, a board of academic advisors at CLT. We lean heavily on them uh, for the CLT author bank. And so the CLT author bank, two thirds of all of the passages that we put in front of students are drawn from the author bank. And again, instead of CLT coming in and saying we're the new experts, we want to defer to our academic board. Uh, and say you're the experts. And so, so some amazing names on this board, uh, including people like Cornell West, who is not obviously, I mean, he's, he identifies as a, as a Christian Marxist, I believe, uh, but he, he deeply values uh, the unique contribution uh, of the Western intellectual tradition. Um, and so you look at our author bank, you know, who do you see? You see, you know, Plato, you see St. Catherine of Siena, you see Jane Austen, Frederick Douglass, uh, Nietzsche, Darwin, uh, we're not just putting, uh, of course, students in front of like, you know, conservative Christian authors or something. We're putting students in front of the thinkers that have most uh, contributed to society and culture. Um, and so, you know, we've had feedback from students of, you know, that passage was was hard to read. You know, uh, maybe it's a Christian student and they're they're reading Darwin uh, or maybe it's an atheist student and they're reading C.S. Lewis, you know. Uh, but that's again, I think it's it's a mark of an educated person that you can entertain an idea that you can digest it um, without, you know, being triggered or, uh, you know, whatever else, uh, you know, college needs to get back to that uh, as well. Uh, so yeah, we take, we, we love, love, love uh, what we put on tests. We take a ton of pride in uh, the kinds of passages uh, that we put in front of now thousands and thousands uh, of students. Yeah, that's incredible. And I, that, thank you for that answer. And I, I have to say, you know, something that just came to mind when, when it comes to like, I couldn't agree more. An educated student is one that can entertain multiple ideas. And if I were to look at one skill that, you know, I, the, that all the people that I love working with day to day in my company uh, possess, it's that skill to be able to, we got some blue angels there, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, is that, is that ability to be able to hold multiple ideas and, you know, not have one, you know, instant bias towards one or the other. And oftentimes yeah. it's the people that are, you know, in our sort of company ecosystem that have a super rigid idea that, you know, if violated, you know, that those end up being like, honestly, the most challenging people to work with um, compared to people that can keep an open mind and be ready for anything, which is often, you know, super valuable in business, being able to uh, be highly adaptable and, uh, you know, change your mind depending on the situation. 
Yeah, that's so true. We we just had some Blue Angels buzz overhead, so so sorry for any of the the background noise there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and it's becoming more and more rare. And so when you do see it, it's like when you meet a young person who uh, is genuinely just grateful. You know, it's not it's not all the time that you see that. And so when you do see that, it's like, oh wow. I think it's the same thing for a student who uh, is comfortable entertaining and um, understanding uh, ideas that may differ from their own convictions. Uh, and it's, it's really valuable for uh, somebody being able to go into a company and work well with people that they don't agree with uh, and to be empathetic uh, at the end of the day. Absolutely. Um, switching into a different sort of realm here, I'm curious if you've thought of, or if you're concerned at all of, you know, the CLT becoming stigmatized, you know, in education in general, it's such a, so many you know, previously universally accepted authors and coursework is being completely cast off as too controversial or, uh, you know, and to the point of if you teach this, you know, you're being racist or you're, you know, uh, it's as if you're aligning with violent ideas, you know, that, you know, even to bring some authors into the classroom is considered violence or, uh, you know, is going to trigger people. Uh, are you concerned at all with uh, just the, the alignment and, you know, sort of being labeled with any of those uh, stigmas? No problem. We got, we got some more blue angels. I'm honestly kind of jealous because that never happens where I live. So uh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> Sorry. It's really loud right now. So I'll, I'll wait just a minute. Um, yeah. Patrick, I think it's a really thoughtful question. Um, and in some ways, the most remarkable part is that CLT is is remarkably unremarkable. Like, it shouldn't be a divisive, uh, controversial company of like, oh, no, CLT has students reading Frederick Douglass and Jane Austen uh, and these authors that have been Ben Franklin, you know, authors that were like at the center of the American canon for generations, you know. Uh, and then we're just saying, hey, let's let's slow down before we cancel everything. Uh, and maybe, you know, put students in front of the same rich source material uh, that was formative for your grandparents and your great grandparents uh, as well. And so, yeah, I, my hope is that in, in 10 years, uh, maybe mainstream America will, will kind of wake up and say, wow, we, we went really extreme for a little bit. Um, you know, yeah, we, we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, I'm, I'm a believer in that. I, I think that there's a lot of work to do uh, in terms of giving various voices uh, a seat at the table, maybe the voices that have been neglected uh, in the past. But, you know, I think the other thing, one of my, one of my favorite books, Patrick, is uh, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. And in the Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis makes his whole case, instead of uh, using the Western term uh, natural law, he makes his whole case there around this Eastern term called the Tao. And he essentially makes the case that cultures actually really don't disagree in terms of kind of basic morality, you know? The remarkable thing is actually how much they agree. They generally say, don't lie, don't kill each other, don't sleep with another man's wife. Um, there's there's tremendous amount of overlap between the basic kind of moral framework of most cultures. And C.S. Lewis's uh, argument in The Abolition of Man is that modern education has moved outside the Tao. Uh, it has moved outside of that framework. And so, and I think if I had to put my finger on exactly what makes CLT kind of disruptive and different is that we're, we're going back into that framework. And though we may be fringe in 2020, we have the overwhelming majority uh, of people throughout history, uh, I think, behind what we're doing uh, and what we stand for. 
I love that. And I, I, I do believe that, you know, as time goes on and, and more of your cohorts start to, you know, graduate, edu- uh, graduate, uh, I'd be super curious to see the data on how they do, you know, five years after college. And I would be very confident just in, from what you've told me and the education that they're oriented towards that they will have much higher results than, than those uh, that focus more on uh, the SAT and ACT uh, criteria. That's great. We did, we just got buzzed again, Patrick. It's, it's feels like we're being attacked right now. Exciting uh, day. Well, Patrick, this, this has been a delight to, uh, to visit with you today. I'm super honored to, uh, to be on the program and, uh, yeah, let us know uh, how we can kind of get this out on our end uh, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Jeremy, thank you so much for your time today. I know you must be crazy busy, you know, building CLT and, and I'm really excited to see what you develop in the future. Uh, before we wrap up, do you have any sort of final ask requests or, or, you know, uh, any sort of final ask request for the audience or where they can find you or how they can help you out? Yes. Yeah. Um, really happy to be doing this podcast today. Uh, our, the, uh, the podcast at CLT as well called the Anchored Podcast uh, has been, been growing like wildfire. Um, what we're trying to do is also be a platform that can demonstrate uh, civil dialogue. And so we actually try to have whenever we can people who disagree with everything we're doing. And we want to say, hey, we can actually have a civil conversation about you know why we're doing this and why we think it matters with people uh, as well. So that is the Anchored Podcast. Uh, grateful if you can uh, subscribe to that. Uh, and you can check out our website, cltexam.com. If you have a junior or senior in high school, uh, have them take the June 19th uh, CLT. And if they apply to Baylor University, uh, it is totally free. Uh, so don't forget that as well. That's incredible, Jeremy. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing here. I, I really do respect it, appreciate it, and I am dying to see uh, the results of this continue to unfold. And uh, I will definitely subscribe to the Anchored Podcast. That sounds unbelievable. Sounds like a lot of fun. Hey, Patrick, th- thanks so much for the invite today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.